0: the powers that be have uh, prevailed upon me to continue on in in Samuel. And um, so that's what I'm going to do. Um, I came to this particular chapter and and I was reminded of a memory that I I had. I've only been in one really bad traffic accident in my my life. I've had some fender benders, but one really bad traffic accident in which I I, uh, crashed my father's 1984 Chrysler LeBaron into the back of a GMC Jimmy. Um, I looked down for just a moment, and the next thing I looked up, and it was stopped right in front of me. It had stopped for a cat, of all things. I've had problems with cats ever since then, but I, <laughs> I looked up, and I hit that car with such force. In fact, they, the, the, when the CHP officer arrived, they didn't find any skid marks, um, so I didn't have time to put on the brakes, but I, I hit this car with such force that, that the, the lady in the passenger seat in the jimmy in front of me, um, the bolts broke on her seat, and she went flying backwards. And that's how hard I hit this this, this Jimmy. Um, and uh, I had two people. It was a bench seat. And I had two people next to me and someone in the back seat and the lady in the middle. um have to be my girlfriend at the time, Deanna Johnson. Later my wife. It's a, married, a wonder she married me. Um, she hit the, the windshield with her face. Uh, the other two walked away with just minor injuries, a knee-hand injury. Um, but it, there we were, you know, and... Um, someone in the community heard the loud crash, came out and called 911. That was back before you had cell phones. At least it would fit in your pocket. Remember the big, like, looked like luggage with the cord. That was the only cell phone they had back then. But somebody called 911, heard the sirens, the ambulance came. Of course, I was the only one that wasn't hurt in the car. That kind of made me feel a little bit guilty. Um, but the ambulance came and, and, um, got Deanna Johnson into the ambulance and off it went to the ER. And, um, and that part was, um, I was glad she was, she was okay, she was alive, she, um, she was trucked off to a place that would be able to take care of her and find out what was wrong. My next greatest concern was, what would my dad say to me? Um, this was in our hometown where I had the wreck. They say you, you crash your car typically, right, just miles from home. Well, that's, that's where I crashed the car. I was thinking to myself, what's my dad going to say when he gets here and finds out that his Chrysler um, is completely totaled? Um, would he be mad at me, upset at me? Because I can remember him more than a dozen times telling me, Danny, you drive way too close to the cars in front of you. Did I listen? No, I didn't listen. I followed too close. So I was thinking maybe he would say, "Um, I told you so. Well, my dad drove up in his pickup, and he got out of the car, and he rushed over, and and I said something like, you know, Dad, I'm sorry I totaled your car. And he just looked at me, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, you know what? The car is replaceable. But you guys aren't. I'm just glad you're okay. And uh, in that moment, uh, it said volumes to me because what it said to me is that, that he valued us over his car. Later, months later, he told me, he says, you know, it was about time to take that thing and put it down, you know, the Chrysler. Uh, but he wouldn't say that at the time. I was just so thankful to hear that I was valued by him. And, and it's interesting in reflecting back on that, how accidents or tragedy, threat of death or death itself oftentimes brings out what we value the most. That is what we really prize with our hearts. That sometimes we don't really know what we prize until the threat of it being taken away confronts us, or we find ourselves without it. Then we realize in those moments just how important it is to us. It is this tragedy, threat of death, accidents, oftentimes have a way of revealing what we value and prize the most. Now, when we ended 1 Samuel, um, we ended it in tragedy the death of Israel's king, King Saul. His three sons, Jonathan and the other two, dead. Um, the armies of Israel are strewn about dead on the hills of, of Gilboa. And the, the people of Israel, um, that is the people in the north, the civilians living in towns and villages, um, flee as refugees because the Philistines have marched in. So by the time you end First Samuel, it's just like, like Israel is in ruins. It'd be like us realizing that not only the president was dead, but half the Senate and his, his chief of staff, and, and, and half the United States Army is just completely wiped out. You, there'd be a, just a massive sense of tragedy, of crisis. You can imagine the heaviness of heart. Well, 2 Samuel chapter 1 picks up right where that tragedy leaves off. As I said last week, this is really intended to be seen and read as one book, First and Second Samuel, just two acts of the same book. Um, and here we see or read... For the first time, how David responds, hearing about the tragic death of the king, his sons, and the armies of Israel. And out of this tragedy, and in particular his response to the tragedy, we see something emerge from his heart. What he prizes and what he values most. We get an expression of what's within. And it's something that I think is deeply challenging. At least it's challenging to me, and I pray it's challenging for you as well. Um, But first, a negative negative example, because the story really starts out with, in terms of response to the, to the tragedy, it starts out with a negative example of, of someone who responds uh, in an ungodly and greedy way. Um, I'm going to read with you, uh, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, where we pick up the story. where It says, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Those were ancient ways of showing, kind of as Dan alluded to earlier, um, of showing mourning um, in a visible way, tearing your clothes and putting dirt on your face. Um, And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who, um, who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him, and we looked behind him. He saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. That is, he's a non-Israelite person. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him and killed him, because I was sure that he would not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Here is this... Messenger and Amalekite who runs some eighty plus miles from the battlefield south where David is, when he gets there, he has all the um, pretense of mourning. he has dirt on his face and he 's torn his clothes. Um, he brings the royal crown and this armlet to David and he confesses to euthanizing israel 's first king, that is putting him to death on the battlefield and um, and if you read. The two accounts, the Amalekites account here of what he says happened and the actual account of what we saw last week in 1 Samuel 31, you'll realize that there are some discrepancies, which would lead me to believe and many to believe that the account here is a, is a lie. That is, we're told in the recorded account of 1 Samuel chapter 31 that that Saul actually fell on his spear, whereas he tells him here that he was leaning on his spear. Moreover, back in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, um, we learn that his armor-bearer doesn't take his own life until after he sees Saul is dead. His armor-bearer, his protector, would not in any way, shape, or form allow Saul to be killed by an Amalekite, a a foreigner, while he's still alive. Um, Again, suggesting that the version here that the Amalekite brings to David is, is nothing but pretense and lie. So he looks the part, he looks like he's grieving, he comes to him, he tells a story, um, and then presents him with the crown and an armlet of, of, of Saul. Now it doesn't take a, a brain scientist or a brain surgeon, a rocket scientist, brain surgeon, um, to figure out kind of what's going on here. Um, this is what you call a, an opportunity to, to get ahead, um, Apparently, this Amalekite was on the battlefield, found Saul's body dead, and saw an opportunity. An opportunity to sully favor with the future king, King David. And so he runs, he takes the crown and the armlet. He actually confesses to killing David's enemy, that is King Saul, and presents the crown. That is, he sees this as an opportunity to get ahead, this tragedy. Now, if David was any other man, that is a fleshly man, not a man of faith then perhaps he might have, this particular messenger, might have scored. He might have been given a cabinet position or at least some money or some kind of a reward for killing David's enemy. And David refers to Saul as an enemy in a number of Psalms, um, bringing him the crown and the armlet of King Saul. But as you well know, David has a really high view of the crown and of God's anointed, so much so that he would never raise his hand against the anointed, which means what this messenger did was indeed a big no-no in David's book. And David responds in a way that is not fleshly, but rather shows his, um, his high regard for God's king. And this is how David responds to this messenger who, who claims to have taken the life of Israel's first king. Verse 13 says, And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner in an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David was afraid to do it. His armor bearer was afraid to do it. But here's this Amalekite who has no fear of God's king. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down that he died. David executed this man who was kind of a would-be Brown-noser trying to get ahead. David didn't quite respond as the Amalekite thought, not with reward but with execution. By the way, just as a side note, David didn't really know what happened on the battlefield. We're privy to 1 Samuel 31, so by all accounts, David thought he was telling the truth and executed him for killing the life of of Israel's first king. It's interesting to me also that there is this contrast that I think we're intended to pick up on that I think offers us a lesson. Here is an Amalekite who sees an opportunity amidst the tragedy and death to get ahead. And he kind of takes matters into his own hands and he grabs the crown and armlet, thinking that he'll get ahead. Um, Contrast to David, who repeatedly refuses, refuses to take matters into his own hand and reach for the throne himself. He just is a man who continues to live his life as best as he can in faith, trusting that the Lord and the Lord alone will be the one who places the crown on his head. That is, to couch David's um, life and his approach in the words of the Apostle Paul, um, David did not consider equality with Saul something to be grabbed after, but rather humbled himself and waited, and through suffering, was granted the crown by God's hand. Now, that should sound a little bit familiar. Just goes to show, and this will be a theme we come back to again and again, um, is that we do not, as God's people, have to force our way into God's kingdom purposes in our lives any more than David had to force his way to kingship. Rather, what we do is we, we, we live day by day in faith, trusting the Lord, and we... Act and serve faithfully, um, trusting in the Lord wherever he's placed us, knowing that he's going to be the one who moves our lives at the right time toward his appointed purpose in our lives. But he's the one who moves us. We don't have to force our way as the Amalekite did. David didn't believe in the belief that God helps those who help themselves. That is a heretical lie according to the Bible, that God helps those who help themselves. Rather, David believed that God helps those who trust in his steadfast love and wait in faith for him to act. That's an important lesson for all of us to get our minds and hearts around. God's the one who moves us. We're just called to trust and walk each day in faith. Well, the Amalekite was a, a negative um, example of what to resp- how to respond in tragedy. He's, he's at an opportunity to... to, to to promote or uh, gain personal um, reward. How does David respond? And this is the the godly part. We find that David responds in many respects in a surprising way, if you take the time to think about it. Um, We read in verse 11, it says, Then David, after he hears the report that Jonathan and, and Saul are dead, and he has the crown and the armlet to prove that, in fact, some of the words were true, that they are dead, it says, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. That is, David laments. He mourns. Now, again, if, maybe you're used to reading this, or maybe it doesn't strike you because it's words on a page. But, Saul had been somebody who had systematically and repeatedly tried to kill David and his men. That is, Saul was seen as and proved himself to be an enemy to David. And yet here we find David not gloating, he's not rejoicing, and certainly he's not celebrating. Nobody's clinking wine glasses or champagne glasses or killing the fatted calf. It's precisely the opposite. David's enemy has died, and he refers to him multiple times in this chapter. Saul, 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 the first king. He's mourning and lamenting for him. That itself is a surprising display of of what's in David's heart. And mourning is an expression of love, care, concern, value, importance. Not only does David mourn himself and lead his men in a time of mourning and tearing their clothes and fasting, because they genuinely and sincerely are, are, are um, sorrowful over this great tragedy, not only with Saul, but his sons and, of course, the armies of Israel are, are, are strewn about, as I said, on the hills of Gibeah. But he actually goes so far as to call the people of Judah to mourn. That is, to corporate mourning. And so he writes this song, um, which is the latter part of the first chapter. And it's, it's good enough to actually read um, he writes this song and then he publishes it and says all of Judah should teach this and we should mourn together for um, the fallen. And it consists of, just as for your interest or for those of you who might be interested, um, there are three verses, like three verses in a, in a, in a hymn. The first one being the longest the next one being shorter, and it ends with simply a two-line verse, each of which is headed by the phrase how the mighty are fallen. Three verses, and it's structured in such a way to give the impression that David through these long verse, not so long verse, and really short verses, if he's letting go in lament. Here's what it says, verse 17. Um, And David lamented with the lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said... Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. This is verse 1. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, and the shield of Saul was uh, not anointed with oil, that it was never cleaned off after battle. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they are not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. That ends the first verse. Second verse focuses on his friendship with with Jonathan. How the mighty have fallen. In the midst of the battle, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. End of verse two. And then the last one, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. You can feel, at least I can, um, The lament, sadness, the mourning of a man of God over the tragic loss of a king, his best friend, and the peoples of Israel. As I said, one thing that isn't surprising is that he would mourn. His covenant friend Jonathan is dead. Naturally, the people of Israel, David loves. And they are um, abandoning their homes and villages and armies are 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 gone. So he has reason to lament, but what is surprising as I said is that he laments the death of his enemy. He laments the death of Saul. Now there's two things I think that we can take. As I said, one of the expressions I think that God exists in the human heart and that we actually are like him is that when we experience things like tragedy, accidents, death, that there is this genuine sense of sorrow and grieving and lament that takes place. But to be more specific, there are two ways in which I think this chapter kind of shows us something, teaches us something as as God's people. One is that I, I believe that it shows us the importance of lament itself as a godly expression of sorrow. Say that again. Um, I'm hoping that this will free some and it will bring patience to others in this room. It shows us the importance of lament, that sorrow, mourning, um, weeping, itself as a godly expression of our sorrow. Commentators have said for years that one of the things that our culture does not want to do is talk about the topic of death or suffering. For the most part, we like to avoid that subject because it's a very negative subject. Don't like to bring it up around the dinner table. makes everybody sad. We're preoccupied with happiness and with joyfulness detached from death, sickness, and suffering. And even when we do talk about death, at least as the way it's presented to us in the news. I mean, think about this for a moment. You know, you see one little soundbite on the news where it says, you know, um, 100 people perish in Syria as a result of the clashes. And the very next soundbite is, by the way, blue, males are, uh, blue, blue whales are now are, are breeding off the coast of Chile. It's like, so not 100 people die and then blue whales are mating next to each other? Next to the death, next to the trivia, and it trivializes the whole thing. And even in our our culture as a church, um, I'm speaking broadly as a church at large, there's not a lot of tolerance for prolonged mourning, lamenting, and sadness over destruction, over death, over loss of loved ones. That is... You know, we like people to be happy because when they're happy, we're happy. And when they're unhappy, then we're not quite as happy. So we find ourselves in the happiness police business going, well, what's wrong? You need to be a little more happy. Don't you know Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose? Cheer up. <laughs> now, that verse is indeed true. But a truth untimely said or without sensitivity and empathy can be more damaging than helpful. Perhaps at that particular moment, it would be better to do what Jesus did in Bethany and just weep with those who weep. And recognize there's a legitimate sorrow of heart and to join in, that there is a time for weeping and mourning. And sometimes it's going to go on months, sometimes it's going to go on years. A close sister who takes her own life or a, or a father who dies suddenly of a heart attack and, and they find, people find themselves grieving and lamenting. What are they supposed to do with that? Is it okay to come to church and cry through worship? Or are the happiness police next to you going to say, hey, what's wrong? You should be happy. This, This statement caught me, and I think it's true. And I'm just hoping that this creates some conversations after service or maybe around your table and maybe some understanding as to the importance of lament. An entire chapter, at least half a chapter, is poured out in lament and mourning. Christopher Wright writes, I feel that the language of lament is seriously neglected in the church. Many Christians seem to feel that somehow it can't be right to complain to God in the context of corporate worship when we should all feel happy. There is an implicit pressure to stifle our real feelings because we are urged, and this next part's well stated, we are urged by the pious merchants of emotional denial. Pious merchants of deny the fact that you're feeling sad or you're feeling. Unhappy over the circumstances you're in, that we ought to have quote unquote faith, as if the moaning psalmists didn't have faith. So we end up giving external voice to pretended emotions, and we do not really feel that we do not really feel while hiding the real emotions we are struggling with deep inside. Going to worship can become an exercise in pretense and concealment, neither of which can possibly be conducive for a real encounter with God. God doesn't want you, when you come to him, to pretend to be one thing when you're another thing. That there is a place, and a big place, within God's people in our interpersonal relationships and, 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 and in worship, to express and feel the range of emotions that we feel and experience day to day. And to recognize there is a place for this lament and this anguish and sometimes even a complaint. How long, Lord, are you going to put up with this? That it's not always supposed to be positive and happy-go-lucky on a a Sunday morning. He's basically saying that it would be inappropriate, um, incongruent, on the Sunday after 9-11 to sing the happy song. It would be fundi- fundamentally incongruent to have a happy-go-lucky speech or preacher uh, preach a message with happy-go-lucky prayers along with I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart when children have been slain in a public school next door. But to be able to, to mourn and lament and have songs of expression and prayers of expression of that lament that it's, this is a broken, jacked-up world we live in. And it hurts. It hurts. And there are people in this room that feel that way and maybe they don't feel the freedom to just say, you know, this is a hard season of my life and, and I'm, I'm trusting the Lord. That's about it right now. That is simply to say that I'm, here's a lament. One of the things that this does is it shows us that God not only calls us, but he frees us and invites us to pour out our hearts to him. Do you know that, that there are more psalms of anguish, complaint, and lament? In the whole book of 150 psalms, which is the worship book of the Old Testament, there are more psalms of, of anguish and complaint and lament than there are psalms of joy. There's an entire book called the book of Lamentations, which is a lament. So, again... Part of this is just being freed by the word of God itself to recognize there's a place for it. And also patience on the part of those who might be going through a season of wonder, delight, and everything's good and your health is good. To really be patient and just say, I understand and I'm going to pray for you and I will weep with you and I'm not going to tell you, get over it. Well, That's, I think, one thing this teaches us is is the importance of, of lament as a biblical expression of our heart when we experience those kinds of tragedies, as David did. But there is also one more thing that it teaches us that's an even, I think, more deep lesson for us, and that is that it shows us what a heart after God looks like amidst tragedy. It shows us what a heart after God looks like amidst tragedy. Um, especially when it comes not only to your friends and those you love, but even somebody who has tried to injure you. David's response to the news of the death of Saul, his persecutor, is that his heart mourns, which, as I said, is an expression of his love and care for Saul, despite the fact that he is David's enemy. There is... Something intrinsically God like when someone mourns over the death of an enemy. God Himself declares to us, Ezekiel chapter thirty-three, verse eleven. He says, As I live, declares the Lord, I do not have or have take pleasure in the death of the wicked. God himself does not take delight in the death of those who don't believe in him. And we would do really well to remember the son of David. When he s- sat on top of the Mount of Olives, Jesus, and he lamented over Jerusalem, and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather your children under my wings as a... As a, as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. The Son of God Himself, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the King, weeps and laments over the very city that would persecute, torture, and crucify Him. But I'll tell you what, Jesus did one more than David. He just didn't lament over Jerusalem and over those who would torture, reject, and crucify him. But in fact, he would die for his enemies. Because that's the heart of the Lord in the Bible. He doesn't just lament. Jesus offers his life as a sacrifice for hardened, proud, self-righteous sinners like the Apostle Paul, and like you and like me. That's the heart of the Lord. A heart of the Lord that weeps over what is broken, over what is being destroyed, over what is lost. And the sector of the church that you see time from time to time that, that has this kind of spirit of gloating and arrogance at the demise of those who we would consider to be our foes out of touch and out of sync with the heart of God and the heart of Scripture. And I think it would do well to just pause and just ask ourselves, how is it that I respond to the news around me? How is it that I respond to Lost people headed towards destruction around me. How is it that I, my heart responds to the news of a 13-year-old girl found in Alouette Park? How is it my heart responds to the news hearing that 100 people have died in, in some Muslim country? How is it that my heart responds? Is it indifference? Is it, well, they deserve it? Or is there a sense of lament? And if there is absolutely no sense of brokenness within, to to offer a a prayer of repentance and say, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. That's what we sing in one of the songs we sing. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Help me to see the world through your eyes. And that I I would have the kind of love and concern for my neighbors and the people around me and the brokenness around me that I would mourn. And out of that morning that I would speak to them and I would minister to them and serve them in a way that might bring them to the place where they can see the heart of God who not only mourns um, over the death of the wicked but indeed, as Jesus did, gave his life for his enemies. So this morning, I just want to kind of finish this by just asking you, I mean, one of the things tragedies do like this is it reveals what's in the heart. And Where is your heart and how is your heart in relation to those who are broken around you, um, those who are lost around you? Just take a moment um, with me and just ask the Lord, Lord, am I a person who is like Jesus said when he said, blessed are those who mourn on the day of redemption, the day of resurrection, we shall be comforted? Just ask the Lord to give you his eyes and his heart for the world around you. as we see expressed in the life of David, a man after God's own heart. Just take a moment and then I will pray.